Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. Glad to have you back for week three of our Beyond the Horizon theme. So far, we've taken a look at some explorers in the ancient Greco-Roman world, as well as a few explorers in China. Today, we're going to look at the age of exploration and the accomplishments of some of the explorers of the time. But before we get to the age of exploration, there's an important group we can't leave out, the Vikings. So let's take a moment to look at the explorations that they embarked on. As you may already know, the Vikings, part of the Norse ethno-linguistic group in Scandinavia, were a seafaring people of the appropriately named Viking Age from the late 8th century to the 11th century CE. They were known for trading, but also for raiding and pillaging, as well as mercenary work. They were also colonizers, making their way into Iceland in the early 9th century. In addition to Iceland, they explored other areas to the west, such as England, as well as to the south, such as Constantinople and Iran. Prior to establishing colonies, they would likely return home following any raids they conducted. However, in terms of these expansions and colonizations, they were limited. In earlier years, the Saxons to the south were powerful and frequently in conflict with the Vikings. A series of fortifications called the Danwerk were built by the Danish in Schleswig-Holstein, Germany, as a defense against the Saxons. In the Saxon Wars, stretching from 772 to 804 CE, the Vikings saw Charlemagne defeat the Saxons and developed a newfound fear for the Franks. After all, they'd seen the Franks defeat the powerful Saxons and forcibly convert them to Christianity. The Vikings then reinforced and expanded Danwerk, which would be used through the Viking Age and even into the 19th century. Though holding this fear of the Franks, the Vikings did strike a blow against an ally of the Franks, the Obotrites on the southern coast of the Baltic Sea. This federation of Slavic tribes fell to the Vikings under the leadership of King Gudfrid in 808 CE, giving the Vikings control of the Baltic Sea, a control they held throughout the Viking Age. You can see some possible reasons they might seek expansion. Another may have been a need to find partners with whom to mate and have children. Oftentimes, women who were taken as wives or concubines were captured by Viking men during a raid or bought. In spite of this, surviving written sources portray women with some independence and rights, liberties not found in many places during this time period. There was still an arrangement where husbands had authority and women lacked power in the realm of politics. However, they did have authority over the household, including managing resources and raising children. At the age of 20, if she wasn't married, a woman was considered by law to be her own person and could choose where to live, though her husband would still be chosen by her family if she married. She was also able to inherit a portion of her husband's property when he died and gain that same independent personhood of those unwed women. She could even become head of the family if her father and any brothers died. Outside the household, women were active in religion, the arts, and medicine. 
There's more to it, but you get the idea. These Vikings, who often kidnapped or bought women, also gave them rights and liberties that women in many other areas did not have. Unfortunately, these liberties began to disappear following the introduction of Christianity and ceased to be mentioned at all by the late 13th century. Exactly how and why this happened are a topic for another day. For the Viking Age, though, it was a reason for them to set out and explore. Another likely reason was the scarcity of resources, which has always been a common reason to look beyond the horizon. Now I'm going to skip to one particular point that will align with the Age of Exploration and shed some light on a certain subject that is of surprising amount of debate even today. This does mean today that we'll be skipping over one of the well-known Vikings, Eric the Red, and focusing on his son, Leif Erikson. Worry not, though. We'll return to Eric in the future. Leif was born in 970 CE to Eric the Red and his wife, Schaldhild. He was also a distant relative of Nadod, who discovered Iceland. He had two brothers named Thorstein and Thorvaldr, as well as a sister named Freydis. You can see some influence of Norse mythology in those names. Fun tidbit, the name Ericsson isn't a family name. It's actually a combination of the name Eric and son. To say it another way, Leif, son of Eric, which became Ericsson. So why am I focusing on him specifically? Because he beat Columbus to North America by nearly 500 years. Leif discovered the area quite by accident, it seems, when he was blown off course and spotted the modern-day province of Newfoundland in northeast Canada. In 1000 CE, he landed there and became the first known European to land on the continent. While there is still speculation, a combination of writings about him, geographical descriptions, and archaeological evidence strongly support that the colony in this region was indeed the one he founded. There, Leif encountered a people called Red Indians to distinguish them from the Inuit people. They called them Skrælingi, which is an archaic term for the word wretches. Despite the negative connotation behind these terms, relations were initially friendly until Thorvald was killed by an arrow during a fight with a particular group. He is then said to have died in dramatic fashion by pulling the arrow out and saying, this is a rich country we have found. There is plenty of fat around my entrails. Really now, that is a dramatic way to die. Nobody is going to forget that. Ultimately, these explorations and colonization attempts were short-lived. When relations with the natives went bad, the Vikings were unable to conquer them or even defend against them, forcing a withdrawal back to Greenland. So that's a brief rundown of the Vikings and their short-lived exploration that led Leif Erikson to discover the continent long before the journey of Columbus. As we get into the Age of Exploration, I first want to mention China's activities. Now last week I said there was some activity even though they weren't out there with the Europeans. In the early 15th century, right as the age began, the Ming Emperor Yongle sponsored missions out to the Indian Ocean. These visited many locations with diplomatic and trade goals. This may have taken the Admiral Zhang He as far as Madagascar. Though these explorations did allow the Ming to assert a sort of dominance and increased maritime trade, it proved short-lived. 
Following the emperor's death, the gains made here were lost when the Chinese became more isolationist, letting go of their maritime network. So strong was this societal change that later emperors actually tried to suppress knowledge of what Zheng He had accomplished. So you see how they did indeed explore right at the beginning of this age, but it was so brief and the gains made were so short-lived that it may not feel like they were part of it at all. That, and of course that it really focuses more on Europe, the Atlantic, and what they did there. Okay, now it's time to really get into the big part of today's episode, where I'll finally answer the question of who the real first person to circumnavigate the Earth was. The Age of Exploration is also called the Age of Discovery, appropriate given that these explorations were indeed successful for the Europeans. When the Vikings landed, they weren't able to stay. When the Chinese had their try in the Indian Ocean, their success was only brief. But the Europeans went exploring and what they accomplished truly shaped our world. Let's get started with Ferdinand Magellan. Magellan was born in Sabrosa, Portugal in 1480. Son to the town's mayor, he grew up as a page for King John II's consort, Queen Eleanor. He served in the 7th Indian Armada, taking part in several naval battles, and he then sailed in the first Portuguese embassy to Malacca. They were forced to retreat, and he was responsible for warning everyone and rescuing those who had landed. He later got himself into trouble, and while serving in Morocco he was wounded, leaving him with a permanent limp. Accusations of illegal trading with the Moors proved false, but still, employment offers dried up after May of 1514. The king, now Manuel I, refused his request to find a new way to reach the Spice Islands by sailing to the west. So Magellan set out for Spain in 1517. In Seville, he married and had two children. He threw himself into studying charts trying to figure out that route to the Spice Islands. A young King Charles I ruled Spain at the time. The success of this possible route was something that Spain had a vested interest in. The 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas had given Portugal control of the east routes to Asia. Sailing westward to approach the Spice Islands from the east would mean avoiding that and establishing a successful new trade route for Spain. Charles liked this idea, and the expedition was approved, along with most of the funding Magellan needed. Magellan prepared with five ships, two years' worth of supplies, and a crew of 270 men, mostly Spanish, but about 40 or so were Portuguese. September 20th, 1519, Magellan's fleet set out into the Atlantic. They were headed west towards South America. Starting at Rio de Janeiro, Magellan took his fleet south along the coast, looking for a passage through the continent if possible, or otherwise around it. Unfortunately, their expedition was halted in March when winter weather conditions forced them to seek shelter in a natural harbor at the port of St. Julian, so named by Magellan himself. Later sailing expeditions would come to use this port to wait out the winter weather, including Sir Francis Drake. More on him in a bit. This stop for winter proved to be a dangerous one, and not just because of the weather. Facing an extended stay that he hadn't planned for, Magellan chose to limit rations. Many sailing with him did not like this, feeling like they were somehow being punished. 
Some demanded a return to full rations, while others demanded a return to Spain. Following the observance of Easter Sunday, mutineers took three ships in their stand against Magellan. With those loyal to him, strategy, and a little bit of luck, Magellan was able to turn the tides. Luis de Mendoza, captain of the Victoria, was the first mutineer killed, and as a result his loyalists submitted. To add further insults, Magellan paid Espinosa, Mendoza's killer, and his men for what they'd done. Twelve ducats to Espinosa and six to each of his men. The price of these mutineers' lives. It's difficult to pin down how much that is today, but by the comments of one of the mutineers, it wasn't much. Captain Quesada of the Conception was next and was arrested. Juan de Cartagena of the San Antonio surrendered soon after. This Eastern Mutiny began and ended on April 2nd. Then Magellan showed them he was to be more feared than any storm at sea. Mendoza's dead body was secured by his wrists and ankles to the capstans, drums on the ship's deck used to lift heavy objects. They were then turned until the body was literally ripped apart. The pieces were then put on display as a warning to any would-be traders in the future. Sounds barbaric to us, but for them it was not an unusual punishment in response to such treachery. He also utilized torture, effective at instilling a great fear of his wrath and preventing future mutinies. Afterwards, all 40 mutineers were sentenced to death and then had their sentences commuted to hard labor. Except the two remaining captains. Quesada was beheaded by his servant, Luis de Molino. This was cruel in that doing so went against Spanish standards of morality and codes of behavior going back hundreds of years. Yet the alternative was to die along with Quesada. After his beheading, Quesada's body was given the same treatment as Mendoza's. Cartagena was different, conspiring with a priest for another betrayal and tied to Archbishop Fonseca back in Spain. Unable to bring himself to execute a priest, and unable to execute Cartagena at all, Magellan instead stranded the pair at St. Julian, a wilderness at the time. Torture and death may have been more merciful. The two were given limited supplies of biscuits and drinking water, and never heard from again. Calculating, subtle, brutal. Words to describe Magellan's actions. You may be wondering why I'm spending so much time on this part of his journey. I want you to understand the type of man we're talking about here, who he really was when he sought to travel beyond the horizon, and who he'll be when his journey comes to an end. It also helps show how things like brutality and morality, how these ideas are different for them than they are for us now something to always keep in mind as we study these histories. All this in mind, we're now going to speed up the voyage a bit. Before winter's end, one of the ships, the Santiago, was lost in a storm and all on board survived. After winter ended, the remaining ships located what is now known as the Strait of Magellan, which took them through to the Pacific. Before they finished exploring the strait, the San Antonio abandoned the fleet and returned home to Spain. It arrived in Seville six months later in May of 1521, where all but one of the men on board testified during a six-month trial that Magellan was a monster. This included the fact 
that he left Cartagena and the priest behind in San Julian. Once in the Pacific, Magellan was in for a bit of a surprise. Based on known geography of the time, Magellan had expected a three to four day trip to Asia from the Strait. In actuality, it took nearly three months and 20 days. Food and water supplies were exhausted and 29 men died, most of these from scurvy. 25 to 30 more suffered other maladies affecting their arms and legs, leaving a very unhealthy crew. With his personal supply of quince fruit, similar to a pear, Magellan remained healthy while the rest suffered. As a side note, scurvy was new in this time, an example of the age of discovery bringing a new disease to Europe, and at the time of Magellan's voyage, they knew little about how to cure it. After a series of misunderstandings with the Chamorro people in Guam, Magellan sailed on to the Philippines. Arriving in mid-March, he befriended the leaders of the island Limasawa. He held the first mass on March 31st, Easter Sunday, with most being receptive to the idea of converting to Christianity. Magellan then shifted his purpose, offering to deal with any enemies the king had. Eventually, this led to the island of Mactan, holdouts of the conversion to Christianity. They resisted because they were propitiating the gods in hopes that they would aid a man so sick he'd been unable to speak for four days. Magellan used this to his advantage, told them to burn their idols, believe in Christ, and baptize the sick man in order to save him. So driven was Magellan that he offered to have himself beheaded if the man died. Miraculously, the man did recover. Magellan and his men went into a frenzy, burning every idol and shrine they could find, including the entire village of Chieftain Lapu-Lapu, who shared the island with Chief Sula, and he was married to Sula's sister. Sula first tried to calm tensions with diplomacy, which ultimately failed. He then offered to have his men fight alongside Magellan if it came to war. Magellan refused this. Sula then requested Magellan send men to help him, and Magellan placed his men at Sula's service. Would seem like he should help, considering he burned the village down. When the fighting started, Magellan joined alongside his men, but the Europeans in their armor struggled to wade through the shallow water to shore while under a barrage of pointed stakes with fire and stones. Seeing a seemingly empty village, Magellan set fire to it, thinking it would terrify the Mactanese, because that worked so well the first time. Instead, 50 infuriated warriors with swords and shields charged from a building and assaulted Magellan and his men. Magellan, realizing too late just how bad the situation was, took a poisoned arrow to the leg. He ordered a retreat, and most of his men scattered. Only six or so stood by him. They did so in water up to their knees, and Magellan continued to stand firm even as the natives targeted him. No one came to help the Europeans. In part, this was Magellan's own fault as he'd ordered his Christianized allies to wait and watch, and none of Magellan's men helped from the ships. With the poison weakening him, Magellan fought on through injury after injury to ensure his remaining men escaped battle. Eventually, the Mactanese, with their bamboo spears and iron cutlasses, ended Magellan's life. 
an explorer with grand dreams and careful plans, all gone wrong. No prayers were said in his memory or alms distributed. No burial in Seville. None of his contested estate went to his family. No honor. His body remained on the island and his fleet, now led by Juan Sebastian Elcano, departed for home. In September of 1522, just one of Magellan's five ships arrived in Spain, the Victoria. Of his original crew, only 18 survived this journey around the world. Unfortunately for King Charles V of Spain, this would not be the boon he'd hoped for. Retracing Magellan's voyage proved both costly and deadly. Facing bankruptcy after three unsuccessful repeat voyages, he was forced to give up control of the Moluccas to the Portuguese in the Treaty of Saragossa. So for Spain, hopes for a direct route to the Spice Islands ended. Yet Magellan's exploration, though he did not complete the journey himself, left a great knowledge the world had never known before. There was a route around the world, albeit a treacherous one, one that showed a degree of greatness in Magellan given the devastating failures future voyages proved to be. Magellan had left a great legacy, just not the one King Charles V had hoped for. A Portuguese sailor sailing under a Spanish king whose journey was completed by a Spanish navigator that failed in one sense, but left a great legacy in another. For our last explorer today, I want to talk about someone with some similarities to Magellan, who fits in with the question I posed regarding circumnavigation. Sir Francis Drake, the first explorer to follow Magellan's route, a feat completed in 1580, 58 years after the Victoria's return. None were able to do so before him. Sir Francis Drake was many things. Among them, an example that the same actions can make you a hero in one person's eyes and a villain in another's. A hero to England, a pirate to Spain. The trick of it is, many times you're really both. One of the ways Drake became a hero to England was by attacking Spanish ships and raiding their ports. A big accomplishment for Drake is that he was the first to lead a full circumnavigation voyage from beginning to end. Juan Sebastian Alcano did set out with Magellan and take over Magellan's voyage following his death, earning himself the distinction of first to make the circumnavigation, but he died in the follow-up attempt before even reaching the islands. It was Drake, with the use of detailed notes from Magellan's voyage, finished by Alcano, who would repeat the journey and lead it from beginning to end. There's that legacy of one exploration facilitating another, similar to what we saw in the Silk Road. Magellan's voyage, and O'Connor's, provided Drake with the knowledge to make his own journey. By Drake's time, relations between King Philip II of Spain and Queen Elizabeth I of England had deteriorated. Drake, journeying with his cousin John Hawkins on a slaving voyage, gained a personal hatred for the Spanish when the ships were attacked, after which his actions led them to consider him a pirate. He made trading voyages and raiding voyages before the convention of Nijmegen in 1573, resulted in England ceasing official support of raids on Spanish ships. Drake had to lay low and begin using his stolen loot, worth around 90,000 to 100,000 pesos, to build a new ship, 
sturdier and more heavily armed than any he'd commanded before. In 1577, Queen Elizabeth secretly invested 1,000 crowns to send Drake on an expedition. This was to take him out to the Spanish colonies situated on the Pacific side of South America. Additionally, she wanted him to look for places where the first English settlement in the area could be founded. All of this support had to be done in absolute secret. If the Spanish found out English royalty was backing Drake as a privateer, it would have become known that they violated the convention. Drake's command ship was the Pelican, weighing in at 150 tons and armed with a total of 18 guns. This is no exploration ship like we saw with Magellan. This was a ship equipped to fight. The other ships were the Elizabeth, the Marigold, and supply ships Benedict and Swan. On December 13, 1577, Drake set out with his fleet. In the Canary Islands, they captured six ships, three Spanish and three Portuguese. They swapped their Benedict for the Spanish ship Christopher and left the Benedict behind. In January 1578, Drake captured a Spanish merchant ship, the Santa Maria, which he renamed Mary and took personal command of. So Sir Francis Drake isn't just exploring for the sake of England here. He's also carrying out raids and stealing ships, even going so far as to swap out his own or just outright take one into his fleet. When he finally arrived off the coast of Brazil in May, Drake had been rocked by the weather. Not by winter, as Magellan had been, but by terrible storms that scattered the fleet. After stopping in mid-May so the fleet could catch up, it took another three months to reach the Strait of Magellan. Utilizing the information of previous explorers, he was able to navigate the strait in 16 days, a feat that took Magellan over a month, though they were also dealing with the desertion of the San Antonio. Unfortunately for Drake, his arrival in the Pacific was rocked by more storms and eventually a desertion of his own. First, the Marigold was lost in one such storm and never seen again. Then the Elizabeth suffered damage during a storm, and a brewing mutiny forced the captain to return to England. When it was all said and done, only one ship remained, the Pelican, now named the Golden Hind, in honor of Christopher Hatton, who was a patron of Drake's, and whose family crest was a Golden Hind, a female red deer. His fleet's crew of 170 or so had been reduced by more than half. For our explorer and privateer, this was likely a much rougher voyage than he'd expected even with all the failed voyages of Spain over 50 years prior. Still, he was making better progress than they had. Scurvy plagued Drake's crew, as it had Magellan's, but at Tierra del Fuego his men, who had been sent to bring food, returned with, among other things, canelo plants. They also found a bark called Damis Winteri, which could be used to treat scurvy. Heading north along the coast, Drake and his men encountered the Mapuche natives on Mocha Island. Day one was peaceful. Day two was violent when the natives mistook Drake's men for the Spanish, the latter being their oppressors. Two of Drake's men were captured and two more were killed. They were forced to retreat when Drake took a number of arrow wounds, including one to the face. The two captives were killed after the forced retreat. While sailing north, Drake healed and carried out his initial instructions to find and raid Spanish settlements, 
which he began doing in December. He successfully raided Valparaiso, but was forced to abandon plans for Panama when the Elizabeth never returned. And so Drake carried out on his raiding and looting, which I won't detail today. Eventually, the Spanish figured out something was going on and went after Drake, who continued pursuing their ships. This went on for a while until Drake sought to return home. He'd had the service of a Portuguese pilot named Nuno da Silva. His only helpful knowledge was in the Strait of Magellan, so Drake attempted to make him useful one last time. He did so by releasing him to the Spanish with instructions to deliver false information. That information being that he planned to return home through the Northwest Passage. Unfortunately for Drake, the Spanish didn't buy this bluff and so continued to guard the Strait of Magellan, keeping him cut off. So now Drake's mission found him trapped in the Pacific. He first sought the Strait of Anian, believed to grant access to the Northwest Passage. There is a strait that does this, called the Bering Strait. It's located between Alaska and Russia. While Drake believed the Strait of Anian to be somewhere around Northern California. Before he could even get beyond California's coastline, he was forced to turn back due to foul weather in the Northeast Trade Winds Belt. During this search, he'd been avoiding areas controlled by the Spanish. He wasn't raiding anymore. He was just trying to get home. Before turning out to the Pacific, he spent some time among the native coast Miwok people of California in an estuary now known as Drake's Estero. He called this land New Albion and claimed it for Britain. Relations with these people never soured, and it's written that they even appeared sad when he departed on July 23, 1575, to complete the Pacific Crossing. For all his trouble so far, Drake's crossing was a quick one for one taken during his lifetime, a little under three months to travel from New Albion to the Caroline Islands just north of New Guinea. He then arrived at what he thought were Portuguese trading posts in the Spice Islands, but found the native tribes had taken control earlier that year. So that Portuguese control we saw at the time of Magellan was no more by the time Drake arrived. After spending time trading, sailing, and mingling with the native peoples, Drake set out to return to England. He arrived in 1580, unsure of what he would find. Among his concerns was the possibility his privateering may have caused King Philip of Spain to start a war. Instead, he found that things were peaceful, and he was believed to be dead following the Elizabeth's return without him. Remember that the Elizabeth deserted after they arrived at the Pacific Ocean following the damaging storms that helped stir up a brewing mutiny. On September 26, 1580, Sir Francis Drake arrived home along with his 59 remaining crew the spices he traded for, and the many Spanish treasures he plundered. This left Drake with several accomplishments. He was the first Englishman to sail through the Pacific and Indian Oceans and the South Atlantic where Spain had established colonies. And of course, he was the first to lead a voyage on an entire circumnavigation. Queen Elizabeth knighted him on his ship in April of 1581. Elizabeth made his records Queen's Secrets of the Realm, and swore all who survived the voyage to secrecy, with the punishment being death. It was of the utmost importance to keep his actions a secret. If it were known what he did to bring such wealth and knowledge back to England, Drake's success could ignite the tensions with Spain. 
Drake became a wealthy man and became mayor of Plymouth in September 1581 before becoming a member of Parliament in 1581 and 1584. Nevertheless, he continued his privateering to fund Queen Elizabeth's reign with her full, but still secret, support. The legacy of his voyage led to future attempts by others, such as Thomas Cavendish and Walter Raleigh. British dominance in the seas was on the rise. I think that's a good stopping point. Drake went on to further ventures, including aiding England in a war with Spain starting in 1585 and earning him the nickname El Drac, or the Dragon, for being such a terror to the Spanish. But for today, we've covered his big explorations, which is what we were after. Sir Francis Drake was sent out to explore for a couple of reasons, with the biggest being to harass Spanish ships and colonies and seek out a location for England's first colony on the Pacific coast of the Americas. His plan was to return home through the Strait of Magellan and only completed the circumnavigation when the Spanish blocked his return. In other words, circumnavigation, which he became known for, among other things, was not one of his goals. But as a result, his legacy kicked off more explorations and growing English presence in the seas. So today we looked at the Vikings, China, Magellan, and Drake, all with their own reasons for exploring, their own successes and failures, and their own legacies for the future explorers to build on. As for the question of the first circumnavigation, Juan Sebastian Elcano was the first to make the full trip, and Drake was the first to lead an expedition all the way around from beginning to end. For all of Magellan's accomplishments, he did not actually complete a circumnavigation of the Earth. Alright, next time we'll bring it all together with a look at what exploration looks like today. Until then, take care.